0: and that's taken us on a journey from Founder Magazine to this podcast and beyond. And today marks the next step in that journey, Founder Plus. I'm proud to introduce you to Founder Plus, which is an all-access pass to each of our online courses and programs and their proven frameworks for success. It puts Every strategy we've compiled from world-class instructors at your fingertips while connecting you to a global network of like-minded entrepreneurs. Founder Plus will take your business to the next level for today and tomorrow. So whether you've just joined our family or you've watched us grow from humble beginnings, we're really thrilled to have you join us in this exciting new phase of making the founder brand and this company the world's best entrepreneurial community to launch and grow your business. So finally, before we get into today's episode, I'm inviting you to come back, check out Founder Plus and go to founder.com forward slash membership. I'm really excited, guys. This is an incredible new evolution of entrepreneurial education. And our mission is really to get as many of these founders that we interviewed to teach and also give back on the Founder Plus platform and really go more in depth with the knowledge and the experiences and the lessons learned that they're sharing all in Founder Plus. So guys, please go check it out if you're enjoying these interviews. That's it from me. I hope you enjoy this episode. Now let's jump in.
1: What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human who is intent on learning.
2: It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. 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 The Founder Podcast.
3: Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Godin, Godin, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast,
4: The Founder Podcast.
0: Hey guys, and welcome to a very special episode of The Founder Podcast. Today, instead of listening to one guest... You're going to hear from multiple renowned founders about a specific challenge that we all face on our entrepreneurship journey. These guests will share their stories, solutions, and how you can learn to build your business better. In this episode, we're focusing on the challenge of overcoming failure, featuring Amy Porterfield, founder and author and host of Online Marketing Made Easy podcast, Jessica Rolfe, co-founder and CEO of Love Every. Adrian Grenier, co-founder of Ducontra Ventures and Earthspeed Media, Mary-Ruth Guillaume, founder of Mary-Ruth Organics, Evan Goldberg, who's the founder of NetSuite, Kendra Scott, founder of Kendra Scott Jewelry, and Jordi and Julia Kay, founders of Great Rap. To get started, we're going to jump right into my conversation with Amy Porterfield as we discuss how she's almost lost her business named after her.
5: I was in a mastermind with my peers and there was this guy in the mastermind that I really liked and he was doing big things in his own business and I pr- presented an idea like, what if you help me do that in my business and you take a little cut? And he came back with, what if I become a partner in your business and we blow it up and I'm, I do what I'm doing here, but on a bigger level with you, we could do amazing things. Now, I'd like to tell you that it took me weeks and weeks and lots of consulting with my mentors to make the decision to take him into my business as a 50-50 partner. But what, it, what I did is I took one night's sleep and I said yes the next day. And we were off to the races. And the reason, looking back now and a lot of therapy later, the reason I said yes is I was scared to do it on my own. Things were starting to happen. I was really going. It was building. And what if I mess it up? What if it all is taken away from me? What if I can't do it on my own? And it kind of goes back to my days of wanting a boss or doing well having a boss. My business partner that I took on in a business I'd created, he became my boss. This is not his fault. I did this to myself. All my fears were just right there at the surface. And I let him treat me like he was my boss. And all of a sudden, I became a yes girl again. And for years, my business did explode. We did amazing things together. He was a great guy. But I lost myself in that. And one day I woke up and I realized this is not what I want. I don't want a business partner. I'm not even showing up as my true self. I don't want to answer to someone else. This is not working. And when I went to him to tell him I want out of this, it became a disaster. We didn't really have enough things in place to make it easy to get out. And we started to kind of battle on how this was going to happen. And a year into battling how we're going to break up, I almost lost my entire business that I started on my own. We almost had to dissolve the whole thing because I made a decision based on fear and feeling I wasn't enough to do it on my own. And I also wasn't savvy enough to put the legal things in place to protect myself. And so that happened. I was miserable for an entire year. And then finally, we came together through mediation and I got my business back. And it it feels like yesterday, I remember calling my husband after hours of mediation and I said, the business is mine again and everything changed. I went from $5 million to $16 million in about 18 months because I finally stepped into being my own boss and owning it. But the embarrassing part of that story is it took me a long time to believe that I could actually run this business on my own. And so I'm dedicated to helping other people realize they have what it takes to do it on their own, even when it gets hard.
0: Yeah, that's an incredible story. Thank you for sharing, Amy. Um, I gotta, I gotta delve a bit deeper. So, how would have that worked? Because you, you are the brand. Like the, like, like the. We don't, you don't really have a business if, if it was dissolved and you could just start again. Like that's bizarre.
5: So yeah, so it was an interesting partnership because in many ways he was a silent partner. A lot of people didn't even know I had a partner, and for sure my students didn't know. It wasn't something we advertised, and I was the face of the business. And so when we started to talk about how we're going to break this up, because we weren't agreeing with the the dollar amount, I, I have to buy him out. And so we weren't agreeing with that or how it might look, what he could take, what I could take, even though it was my brand and my business and my content. This is why I really struggled with it. And I haven't talked about this anywhere else. This was my baby. I I created the formulas, the models, the content, the products. That all came from me, my own experiences and my own knowledge. But I agreed to bring him in as a 50-50 partner. And he was a machine that absolutely helped us grow our business. So I did that. So there was a lot of shame that I got myself into this place. But legally, because we were a 50-50 partner, if we didn't agree, that business had to go down. But here's where the part of the story I didn't tell you. One morning I woke up in the midst of a year of us battling it out, trying to figure out what was going to happen. And when I say battle it out, we weren't mean to each other. We just weren't agreeing with each other. And when that year was happening, I woke up probably nine months into that year. And I said, I will burn it down and build it back better. If that's what it's going to take, I will burn this down and build it back better. And in that moment, that is where I realized, wait a second. I finally believe in myself. I finally feel that I can do this. And I, what I look at it now is I had a very high capacity for zero. And this is something I teach my students. The higher or stronger your capacity for zero, you cannot lose. And what I mean by that is even though many people listening right now, they're really good at what they do. They've got knowledge and skill sets and trades that they're doing really well, likely maybe in a nine to five job. But when you start your own business, you start with zero social media following, zero people on your email list, likely zero in your bank account, and also no one knows who you are. Are you willing to put down your ego and have a high capacity for zero starting over in order to get you into the life and the business you truly want? And when I realized, oh, my capacity for zero after all this agony has just shot up to the highest, I will start over. I couldn't lose. I was literally in the driver's seat. And I think that's what got me to where I am today.
0: Your first product won't always be your best seller. Jessica Rolfe's organic baby food business, Happy Family Organics, failed twice before finding product market fit and scaling from zero to 63 million in sales. Here's how. At what point in time did you realize you guys had to pivot? Talk us through kind of that transition because it sounds like you guys were going through that kind of trough of sorrow, you know, it's, you've launched, it's exciting, but it's, it's, it's hard to get momentum.
6: I think it was the sales data and really trying to survive and be able to build a sustainable business. We knew that we couldn't do it in the freezer. And so we started putting little tags on in the jar section, think outside the jar, look inside the freezer. We tried to do some cross-marketing, but we thought the best way to do this is to have a product in the dry aisle that would then have a coupon for the frozen baby food. So what product do we think we could create in the dry baby food aisle that was differentiated? And at the time, all the baby cereals, all the infant cereals, didn't include nutrients that were really important for brain development, like DHA, or for digestion, like probiotics. And so we blended a cereal with added DHA and probiotics, and it was more of a premium approach to the cereals that were on the market. And we launched those cereals in on shelf. The big break, I will say, the true transformation, I would say, for the early stages of the business was, again, for some reason, the main cereal competitor, Earth's Best, which was all the cereal lined up, so many boxes of Earth's Best cereal, they had some supply issue. And so for some reason, for like three or four months, we were the only cereal on shelf. and they just stocked us. I remember a picture of just all of our little cans lined up. We couldn't believe it. And so that was really the break that we got to be able to scale, you know, to the next level.
0: Mm. And how much money had you raised at that point?
6: So we first raised 550,000 in our first round of financing. That was a rolling raise. So we were really good at taking in money and spending it as soon as we could. It took us about 9 months to raise that 550. I would say that the later stage, it was a convertible note, so there was some interest being paid before it converted to equity. So the earliest stage investors got an advantage, but I don't think it was as much of an advantage as they deserved, given the transformation that the business went through in those early early rounds of financing. So raised five, 550000 and then we were just constantly fundraising. So we were always rolling into a next funding round, And the funding rounds did get easier over time as we started getting some traction.
0: Got you. And when did you, was it when you launched the serial that you kind of knew you'd be okay? Or was there other difficult times where you were like, wow, is this going to work?
6: It's a great question. I think probably the answer is is that I didn't let myself think, am I going to be okay? Very often. I just sort of kept going. When we We did hit a transformational point when we launched these puff cereal products. So we made an organic version of this cereal that was a finger food. It was a little puff in a container. And our ability to, we stripped out all of the kind of fake flavors, the fake colors, the things that the other competitors had and made a natural version. And those puffs truly had product market fit. So customers wanted them. They loved our natural approach. And that's what started getting us momentum. And so it was surprising because we started the company wanting to make fresh baby food, pivoting to frozen peas, frozen carrots, frozen foods. And then we started to scale really with a snack product. After that, we then had enough momentum to launch the pouch, which really scaled our business. That convenient format was so recognizable for parents. It was so convenient they loved the fact that children could self-feed and hold it in their hands and we included nutrients like chia um, a version of chia we mixed fruits and vegetables into those pouches and so parents really felt you know like we were giving them a gift of healthy food inside of a, a package that was really fun for their children and toddlers to to eat
0: Okay, so you probably recognize Adrian Grenier from his acting roles in Entourage, Devil Rare's Prada, and Clickbait. But now he's an entrepreneur, investor, activist, and co-founder of Do Contra Ventures. Here you can learn how one of his passion projects led him to investing better in businesses that do more for the planet.
1: one that was my favorite that didn't work out was Church key beer. I started a beer company. And man, that was a good time. And (laughs) tell us about that. What's that? Tell us about that, man. Yeah, I had high hopes for that. And in fact, I remember my agent called me and he's like, Oh, you bastard. Like you're gonna be a you're gonna be a billionaire from beer, not acting. Like this is everyone loved this company. And it was great. We, we actually brought back the flat top can. So these are the old cans the way our great grandparents used to drink beer. So before they had the pull tab or the like, so the cans today, if you're, if you're watching have the tab that stays on and it pops a little hole before, back in the day, our grandparents used to have to use a tool, kind of like a can opener, but it cracks a little triangle in the top of the can. And so we brought that back and we were making beer in those old school tin cans. So they were like basically oil cans that were tough. You couldn't squeeze them and you had to crack them open. It was, it was awesome. And so we had this old hipster sort of nostalgia and um, we had a craft beer. It was micro craft, all, all the things. And you know who would have, who would have thought that starting a business is hard, and we, and not only that, the beverage business, not only that, the beer beverage business, which is a penny's game. Like you got to sell a lot of this swill to make any money, and we were doing a premium product. We had like the fanciest cans. It was all the all the things, and you know people want cheap beer. They that's I mean that's the bottom line is they want to really they want they want to spend. Six bucks for a 24-pack, not six bucks for a six-pack. You know? So it's, it, it just ultimately didn't work. The, the, the real fundamental reason why it didn't work was we had some um, canning problems because we were essentially reinventing the can uh, because the whole of the beverage industry had moved towards standardization around aluminum stay tabs which is what I just pointed out and we were we had to retool and recreate a whole canning line to accommodate this this can and it just was cost prohibitive considering our margins and the beer industry we were number one in whole foods for for a while Uh, we were very promising and then you look at the numbers and uh, party's over
0: Mm, yeah interesting (laughs) Why was it so much fun though?
1: Well, I was really proud of the the concept. I was really proud of the our premise and yeah, our, our slogan was worth the effort. You know, the idea is like that, which you put effort into is, you know, worth it, you know, ultimately, and then you get the reward. And um, yeah, I mean, just, I mean, look, I love, I love beer, right? I love craft beer in particular. And we had a great, uh, triple, uh, triple treated, uh, what was it? (laughs) I trying not remember. Um, hops, a, a triple hops treated pill, uh, Czech style Pilsner, which was really, really tasty. We, I think I'd lost 10 pounds when that business went under. So that's how much fun weight I had gained. It, it, and and when you're when you're out selling the beer, like you you gotta drink it. You gotta you gotta be sure to be seen drinking your own product. So it was just a good time. I was a lot younger and I had a lot more energy. So mm. and how was it like? You know,
0: from all your other success in in other areas uh, with film and and music and all sorts of things. Like how how was that? that failure like did it was it tough to work through or you just kind of kept going because that's your nature well
1: you know the biggest the biggest thing the the, the hardest thing to resist it's it's one thing to fail you know they say fail fast because when you fail fast you learn and then you you adapt yeah but it's those of us that refuse to fail we don't want to fail so we hold on to failure so you're basically like hitting rock bottom and then sliding scraping your face across the stone as you hit rock bottom as opposed to just getting it over with so it took us like 2 years to finally accept that it was over and so i did not take it well i did not want to fail i wanted it was like okay we got to believe in ourselves because we're going to be that one success story that we we get to tell the war stories about how we almost failed but we're going to like resurrect it's really hard to know when no 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 this is you're not going to be one of those resurrection stories it's over and and that's and you could keep pouring money into it and borrowing money and trying to save face salvage a dream but you could prolong agony and it's a huge opportunity cost if you don't know when it's over when the party's over All right it's like when when you go out and you're at a club and the lights come on, you've probably overstayed your welcome. (laughs) (laughs) So you gotta know when it's over and it's probably not at the very end.
0: So Mary Ruth Guillaume had $700,000 in debt when she started her organic supplements brand, Mary Ruth Organics. Eight years later, her brand now earns over a hundred million in revenue and employs over a hundred people. Here's how she clawed her way back to financial security.
3: It's so amazing. You have such an amazing podcast with so many people listening who I know are are doing very much the same thing, maybe starting from zero, starting from a deficit. And something important for everyone to know about that $700,000 in debt is that was the most painful type of debt possible, which is that was money. And I'll explain where it came from that I owed to my friends and to my family and credit card debt. Um, and I was able, it took me seven years to get out of debt, but I was able to pay each of those people back with about eight or 9% interest. And I was in a debt management program for credit cards. But where that money came from was I grew up very spoiled. Um, my dad and my 7 year brother Daniel passed away suddenly. And then my mom, who's so amazing, she's um, she was actually the CFO of our company for eight years, but um, we just hired a, a new CFO in November. Um, it, it was so amazing that she took over my dad's business, but th- there were some things that weren't in alignment, meaning we, she was running this business at the time. It was a lumber business that had 300 employees, $89 million in revenue, and six locations. And then the housing market crashed. So Lehman Brothers crashed. And that whole thing kind of left us in after she had to shut down that business and sell those locations, um, left us in personal debt of $700,000. So just my mom and I. And a couple of years went by and I started this New business, which I have today. Um, and what's important to know is that before we had product line, I had to pay about $60,000, $40,000. It was, it was anywhere, each month was anywhere between $40,000 and $60,000 to pay for my apartment, my mom's apartment in New York City, my office apartment, which was Regis, which is very similar to WeWorks. Just so to pay two apartments, an office building, and all of my debt management program, plus the money that I had to pay monthly payments to each person that I owed money to. Um, and I was able to make about $40,000 a month through signing up people one-on-one for my private 12 sessions of nutrition. So I still remember, Nathan, the, the magic number was Uh, 12 sessions, 12 session package for $2,860 a month. And I would sign up like 20 people a month and I would keep going. And I had this business model that is not truly sustainable when you're in that kind of debt where, and I, and I was making it work. I got married in 2013. That's the year that I launched that private practice. And I really was making it work. Um, and I was paying off all of that debt, but it was, I mean, I didn't really see how I could get any leverage. And so it was kind of like the perfect storm. My husband said to me, and, and maybe later on, I'll tell you the story that I think the, a lot of founders would like about a choice I had to make, whether I was going to marry my husband or not, that had a lot to do with a financial decision. But um, I said, okay, I'm going to make a product and this product's going to be the liquid morning multivitamin. And for 6 months I called all the manufacturers and no one is going to take a run for a custom blend product for 90 bottles. No one. Right? If you're going to do a custom blend with a manufacturer, you've got to have at least like $20,000.
0: Yeah, cuz like MOQs like a few thousand, right? At least.
3: Yes, at, le- at the very least. And I told this one manufacturer, so I'm in New York, and she's in California. I said, I promise, if you make this liquid morning raspberry multivitamin, remember the, the first product, now we have 130 products, but that's still our bestseller. I said, I promise you, someday we'll be your biggest account. And someday we became so big that we, we had to leave them, but we obviously parted on good terms. Um, but but the point is that she shipped those 90 bottles to my 580 square foot apartment in New York City. And I took, I think 60 of those bottles to my office. And my husband had made the label on his laptop and printed it out and sent it to the, to the manufacturing um, facility. And I shipped like 20 of them to Amazon. And that was before Amazon was cool, Nathan so that was way before i mean we were on an airplane once and my husband said some guy was like oh what do you do i'm like oh we sell vitamins on amazon and my husband elbowed me and said shh don't tell people you sell products on amazon um because at the time it was furniture and books and a few other things and um and so what happened was my private clients reviewed the product like 20 people without me even asking. And it went into the algorithm of Amazon. It went to the first page and there was no sugar in this vitamin. That's what made it different than the other liquid vitamins. It's just glycerin makes, makes it sweet, the raspberry uh, flavors. And we started selling. I remember crying the first Saturday we sold like $250 worth of vitamins. And I, I honestly could see a path of like getting to do what I love, getting to help people deliver this amazing product. And I saw that I would not be the only one digging us out of this $700,000 in debt. And honestly, there's so much to unpack here. I I can't wait to share with you um, how much we grew each year, but we grew it to over a hundred million in revenue with zero outside funding. And we were profitable from day one. And I'm sure, as you know, it usually takes companies about two years to turn a profit. And there were things that we did that were extremely strategic that I believe in very much. And we did them by ourselves, my mom and I, and then eventually my husband started to help us as well.
0: Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying this episode and learning a ton. As you know, in this series, we interview some of the greatest founders of our generation to find out how they did it. However, if you're thinking of starting your own business and you want to hear from some incredible stories from everyday people like you or I who are actually in the trenches, only been building their business for maybe one year or two years, like that are building right now and they're really in the early stages, but they're getting success. You should come and check out our new podcast, From Zero to Founder, hosted by our community manager, Molly Flynn. These are in the trenches stories from our very own successful students that have gone through some of our programs. People just like you who are deep within the process of building their very own successful business. These are the founders of tomorrow. You can find the From Zero to Founder podcast on all platforms. And remember, it's founder without the E. All right, now let's jump in the show. After his failed attempt at a tech startup, Evan Goldberg invested $2,000 into building a cloud accounting software that eventually transformed into the world's leading cloud-based business management software. I asked him how he's gone through challenging economic seasons in the past 25 years.
7: Well, certainly economically, it's a time where we don't have a lot of certainty and, uh, don't, nobody knows exactly what the next couple of years or few years is going to bring. Um and that's a you know that's a challenge um for things like just the prosaic needs of getting funding and hiring and and uh, and the cost of you know various services that you need to use going up rapidly in a lot of cases. It, it's a lot of uncertainty and it's it's it it, it it's it's challenging. and um, so it just it still requires the same thing though is is making sure you don't get distracted, keeping the focus on your vision, and uh, just uh, plowing through this. And it's this this too shall pass, <laughs> and you know it might mean that you have to uh, you you can't be as aggressive about hiring as you would when there's more certainty and or you know there's various. Uh, things you may need to do that that are different, but the main focus of your energies should be the same as it would under any economic circumstances, which is developing your technology, testing it with users, improving it, or whatever it is, technology, your product, your or your service, testing it with users, improving it, uh, you know, promoting it, get, getting out there, and 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 scaling it um, in any which way that you can, and staying staying very very focused on that vision yeah
0: agree. And I guess, um, because you've been through multiple recessions now, um, have you have you seen coming out the other end? like if you can ride the storm and survive, it yeah, like it
7: it's the you know that saying never let a crisis go to waste. I mean, you make some great changes under necessity. I mean, there's a reason that the cliche necessity is the mother of invention exists. And we saw, for example, in the financial crisis of, of the early 2000s um, that we weren't focused enough on our existing customers. When the orders were coming in so easily, when the economics you know, was, uh, cycle was in the, in the boom phase, you didn't have to worry that much about your existing customers. So you might lose some, so they may not be flourishing with your product. Orders are coming in. I mean, that's an exaggeration. But... When times get tough, first of all, obviously, you need just to bake your numbers, you, you need to be selling more to your existing customers. Most businesses give short shrift to just selling more to their existing customers. It's not as sexy as getting new customers and getting that get increased customer count. Um, but during those times where new customers are are harder to find, that's when you can double down. And we really did double down on looking at how we could help our existing customers use the product more effectively, help them get through their trials and tribulations of the economic crisis and come out the other end. So because if they come out the other end, they're still going to be paying you. Um, And uh, some of the uh, disciplines that we really honed during that time continue to this very day. So, as you know, when the demand came back um, after, you know, in the early 2010s, when the economy really started booming again. We maintained that focus on our existing customers and and that has paid off um, in droves over the subsequent years. After her first business failed,
0: Kendra Scott swore she'd never get back into entrepreneurship. Here you can learn how she transformed her self-titled jewelry company during a recession.
4: Right after the recession. So, um, you know, I had my, my first son was born 11-11, 2001, which is exactly, you know, just a few months after 9-11. And here I am, a new mom, uh, in a very scary time in our history, right? I mean, here we are, you know, right after the recession. And to think about starting a business after I've already had a failure, a failed business under my belt, was terrifying. And I didn't want to tell the world I was starting another business. Uh, And quite honestly, I didn't have the financial ability to, you know, do anything big. So I started small. I had $500. I bought, you know, uh, some materials, stones, wire. I made a tiny collection. And I went store to store in Austin, Texas with my little baby son in a baby carrier uh, and my jewelry in a tea box I had gotten for my wedding and again very quietly I wasn't out at this time to change the world and have everybody see Kendra Scott and I wasn't going to open hat stores like I wanted to all over the country I was going to just try to be a great mom to my new little baby be in fashion again which I loved and try to help you know bring in income for our family to be able to you know have a life that would provide us you know some extra extra money in the household never writing a big business plan to build a over billion dollar brand in those early days. Um, And as I started to see the success, again, it took me a little while to actually want to tell people that I was in business again, because I was afraid of what they would think. And I think knowing that, you know, here I was, and I started to kind of prove myself and it wasn't myself that started telling people it was my customers it was my best friends it was my family all of these people just came supporting me and loving what i was doing and helped me have the strength to say okay i'm really doing this i really have a business and i'm going to not be afraid to tell people about it anymore actually i'm going to start screaming it from the rooftops and i think you know having confidence after a failure is one of the biggest challenges for any entrepreneur it's that not just dust yourself up and get up, you know, dust yourself off and get up again mentality. It really is that own of going, you know what, I can do this. And I, and I'm going to figure out what I just learned from what that obstacle was that we, you know, that I over, I'm going to overcome it and I'm not going to give up. I'm going to do it again. And I'm going to do it better this time and smarter this time and not be afraid.
0: And can you tell us about kind of, you talk about that grit going through it. I know that you Experience a lot of rejection, uh, trying to raise capital. Can you talk us through that process?
4: Uh, that would be the understatement of the year, Nathan. I would go into so many boardrooms. Um, and my dad used to say, well, don't be intimidated by the men in suits. Uh, be, but I was intimidated by the men in suits. And I would walk in. And in Austin, when I was starting my company, it was very tech heavy wow. industries, all about tech, tech, tech. And they wanted me to be a tech company, and here I was, this you know, Southern girl who was in fashion, and trying to explain what I was doing. And even after having success of getting some major department stores and and really starting to grow the business, uh, it would still be like I felt like they were just laughing at me in the face. And I'd walk out, and it was just every time, it was like, okay, you know what? Just keep trying. And I and I got great advice from one of my mentors, and he said, Kendra, you know. I, well, this was funny. He first, first, I had somebody tell me, "Well, you need an angel investor," and I said, "Yeah, I need an angel. Where do these angels hang out? I need an angel, um, but they don't just hang out. Like you just, you know, it was a different time. Two thousand three, two thousand four. We didn't have access to people via social media and these different, you know, platforms as we do today. And so I would try to go into these meetings and just kept getting, you know, shut down, shut down, shut down." And one of my mentors told me kendra if you build it they will come and they're going to come aggressively focus on building the absolute best business you can build and i know that's hard and i was doing it through lines of credit credit card debt putting every single thing i owned up for collateral Uh, within a short period of time i had a one and three year old and was going through a divorce so now i was a single mom on top of all of this with an in basically a baby and, and a just toddler, uh, and it was hard because I needed help and support. Um, but having to put everything I had at risk, but again, just focusing on the business, focusing on building the best business I could. And he was right because people started to take notice, and I wasn't calling them anymore. I started getting calls from investment bankers and you know interested investors. And it was a really eye-opening experience for me to be able to then go, oh, wow, now they want me. But I had to prove myself a little bit.
0: Yeah, wow. And, you know, in 2008, the world of change, recession has hit. Um, How did that affect the business? And was that around the time you were trying to raise capital, uh, you know, everything you had going on, lines of credit, everything you owned going through the divorce? Was it around that time?
4: So I was divorced in 2005 um, and so was already divorced. In 2008, I can't even explain to you. So we were just a wholesale company. So I was just selling to other retailers. I was not direct to consumer. Um, After the hat box and that failure of running a retail store, I said, I am never going to be in retail again. I am never going to do that. That is scary stuff don't want to have any part of it. Get me out of retail. So this is safer. I, they, you know, a store writes an order, boop, boop, boop. I pack it up. I mail it to them. They deal with it. You know, it's great. Beautiful business. 2008 hit and all of my eggs were in that one basket. Nathan, I had the power that I didn't have was in the power of the buyers that were writing the orders for the department stores who are now getting laid off with the recession. Relationships that I had built just you know, going away overnight, boutiques and stores that I had worked with across the country shuttering left and right, Uh, big companies filing for bankruptcy uh, that I had just shipped orders to. Um, You know, it was devastating time. And I only had a line of credit. I had no investors. Uh, And to try to even think about getting an investor to invest in you at this period, I mean, that was not even, there was an, there was no conversation starters there with, Hey, what do you think about investing? I know we're going through, you know, an economic collapse financially, but you know, maybe they're like, absolutely not. Then my bank, big bank calls and says, you know, we feel that jewelry fashion, these are high risk areas for us. And we'd like you to pay off your line of credit within the next six months. Wow. Yeah. And I said, well, I don't, I can't. I can't pay off the line of credit. And I've paid my interest. I've done all the things I'm supposed to do. I've never been laid on a payment. And I'd call and try to talk to somebody and they'd be like, "Uh, what's your loan number? And I'd be like, A7, blah, blah, blah. You know, all these numbers. They didn't care that I was Kendra Scott. They didn't care that I was a person. You know, they just were like, what's your loan number? And you'd get shifted around. And I remember sitting on my kitchen floor and just crying and thinking, this is it. I'm going to lose my business, like so many of the businesses around me. And I thought, okay, what am I going to do? And I started to go to some local Texas banks and I went to one local Texas bank and the president was female and she wears my jewelry. She knows my brand well, you know, I'm very well known in Austin. And I sat across from her and I remember saying, Carrie, you know, can you please consider taking on this line of credit? And I promise you, With everything I have, if I have to sell everything I own, I will not only just pay it back, but I am going to crush it. And here's my new business plan and how we're going to get out of this. We are not going to just focus on wholesale anymore because I need to have a direct connection with my consumer. I need her to say, I want Kendra Scott when she walks into every department store. Where is the Kendra Scott? And the only way I can do that is if I have a direct connection, meaning I need to get back into retail. I need to get back and and have an e-commerce website. And i need to start to communicate with her directly not through middlemen anymore and you're thinking you know all these stores are shuttering here i'm going in and i'm opening a store Um, i'm doing kind of the crazy thing but it actually that was when the magic happened and if it wasn't for that recession if it which i say was the greatest gift wrapped in a yellow bow that kendra scott could have ever gotten as a company we would not be sitting here talking today because that shift that shake the snow globe moment forced me and my team to have to think differently on how we are going to run the business. Wholesale is now 18% of my overall business direct to consumer through our retail stores and online is, makes up the rest. So it was a complete business shift, um, but the one that gave us lightning in a bottle growth.
0: Last but not least, we're going to hear from Geordie and Julia Kay, the founders of Great Wrap. This is the only compostable stretch wrap made from food waste. In 2022, they received $24 million in Series A funding, but it wasn't without some really tough moments, which you're going to hear.
8: Definitely. And this was at the very beginning of the, we are going to become manufacturers journey. Yes, um, We took on a what felt big at the time, lease of a factory space, considerably smaller than what we have now but still really big. Um, and we moved, <laughs> we, it was a very affordable lease for us at the time but, like, that brought with it its challenges. It was like a warehouse that someone had, I think, a, you know, someone had kind of just been hoarding a collection of cars in. Um, so there was, I reckon, like 50 rusted cow bodies <laughs> in yeah, there yeah. and we like it was it was a really fun project but we were like we'll tidy this up get this looking beautiful um but i think we'd done something silly like setting a launch date into oh no we wish we wish we were shooting something for netflix like in two weeks time and it was like the machine hadn't arrived the it machine had there the next week the machine <laughs> hadn't arrived but it was like one of those shows like the block but like no cameras it was just like geordie <laughs> and i running around like with a gurney and like a paintbrush um And that was fun but, like, by the end of that week we were like, I don't know, this is pretty hard.
2: Yeah, I think it ended up stretching out for three weeks. We were able to push a couple of things and move. and But at that point, like, we would contract, manufactured everything. So it was, we had to figure out how to manufacture ourselves as well as that and, yeah. and we'd just done our first sort of raise. So we brought on a couple of people at that stage um, to kind of help and it was um, – but they kind of came towards the end of it. So it was, yeah, really us like on – I don't know, just on, the tools, on the tools pretty hard. so that was that was pretty like a lot of tears, a lot of frustrations and then it
8: was fun though. yeah like,
2: yeah yeah. And I think like um, financial stress as well really adds, adds like at that point, you know we just finished a raise. so we we're like, yeah, we've got money, we can make this work. Um, but then you know in between sort of our seed and Series A, we were scaling up to a much larger factory yes. um, and bringing on huge amounts of debt. We were growing the team. And we were missing deadlines, not it was out of our control, but our equipment wasn't being made on time and then was missing shipping deadlines and every it was just like everything kind of felt like it was going wrong. Uh and we hadn't closed our series A. And you're sort of like, Yeah, yeah, like trust us with our money, but I know we're really late, but like we'll we'll get there kind of thing. And uh yeah, it got really down to the wire there. Um and um that's like the most horrific stress because you've got other people's money that you're already managing you've got a team and you've got all these customers waiting and and you feel like you're really at the end of the road so um and you know I think any founders been at that point and and you probably go through it once a year really but uh, and it's how you how you deal with those emotions at the time do you sort of just shut up and turn into a little ball or do you just go okay this is how it is and I'm just going to fight my way through this
0: Mm. and how did how how do you deal with it like
2: yeah, definitely. I think we just we went into just like wartime mode. We were just yeah. like, right, what can we do to make this work? Who can we call? You know, it was just like bringing on the investors, closing everything, um, getting the capital needed, you know, required, and um, getting documents signed, and and just like not abusing equipment suppliers, but just like you've got to whatever you can do, <laughs> like we're completely ruined if you don't put this line to the front of the line. And they came through and they pushed things forward and things fell into place and there was a lot of screaming and, you know, but like it, it came together.
0: As founders, we've all experienced failure. It really just comes with the gig. But how we bounce back is the real measure of success. I really hope these stories inspire you to overcome failures with courage and the belief that if these founders can do it, well, so can you.